Well, it's good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name is Scott, and um, I'm glad to be here. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be here at South Hills and be here worshiping with you today. If you're joining us online, I want to say thanks for joining us and worshiping with us today as well. And if you're a guest with us here today, if you're here for the first time, we want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. And actually, I'll say this. If you are here and you're new, you're not alone. Um, My family and I are new here as well. We moved here uh, over the summer. We started coming to South Hills this last month. And we hope that you feel as welcomed as we have if you are new here, because we have just felt really welcomed here at South Hills Church. So if you're new as a guest, we really are glad that you're here. Now, um, because I am the new guy here, I know that as a church, what we're going to do is we're going to try very hard to sincerely love one another and really work very hard to partner with one another in advancing the gospel here in this community. That's what we're going to try to do. And that's a good thing. That's our goal. But at the same time, I also know something to be true, which is, at some point, we're going to gum things up. At some, th- at some point, at some time, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard you try, we're not going to do it perfectly. At some point, I'll offend you, or you'll offend me, or someone else. There will be just this conflict. There will be tension. It just happens. We're going to work together, but at the same time, we're also going to do um, a step on each other's toes at some point. That's just the reality. I know. That's just part of the reality. And in any relationship, any, you know, a new job, a new relationship, a new marriage, the honeymoon phase is there, but it ends at some point, doesn't it? Some of you, it ended, you know, quickly on your honeymoon or in your new job or in a new place where it's like, okay, wow, there's conflict. Now what do we do? And that's the real question. What, when that conflict happens, what do you do? If you want to move forward in a relationship and you want the relationship to grow, you need to deal with the issue of forgiveness, which is why I wanted to start our fall season with a study on forgiveness, because forgiveness is a core characteristic of the Christian faith. And it's so important that we lay it as a foundation, because you know this to be true in any building, right? If you have a faulty foundation, whatever you build on top of that, you'll find to be trouble later. And so it's just important for us to say, let's build a solid foundation. Let's go back to basic core characteristics of the Christian faith, forgiveness. Let's build that foundation because then we can move forward. Not that we'll do it perfectly, right? But knowing we're not going to do it perfectly, we understand forgiveness has got to be a part of the partnership that we have, of the relationship that we have with one another, the relationships with you have with the people at your, in your home, at your work, at school. If you want to move forward, we need to do the hard work of forgiveness. Now, I know that forgiveness is an important topic because it touches every single one of us. There's not a single person here who, if I ask the question, do you have someone you need to forgive, that you'd be like, well, no, nobody. Now, you may have a hard time thinking of somebody right now, but just wait. At some point soon, you'll probably have someone in your life that you need to forgive. Someone who's wounded you someone who's hurt you, that you will need to practice forgiveness. It's a reality for all of us. And I know without even asking that there's, there's people in our life. Perhaps for you, it's, it's a father who did not treat you well. Perhaps it's someone who abused you sexually. Perhaps it's a, a, a friend who betrayed you deeply. Perhaps it's a teacher or a coach that you're still trying to earn their approval 
Perhaps it's a boss who demeaned you or humiliates you over and over in front of your coworkers. Maybe it's an ex-wife, an ex-husband. Maybe for you it's a, a pastor, a church, a ministry leader. And it's very difficult for you to connect deeply now with the, with the church or with other Christians because of the wounds that you've sustained from somebody else. We all have people we need to forgive. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we move forward individually and as a church if we don't deal with the forgiveness and the hurts and the challenges of our past or the future when we bump up against other people? And for many of us, we are still dragging around chains, anchors of bitterness, unforgiveness, hurts, wounds from our past, and we're shackled by it, and it drags us down. And we won't be able to move forward personally. We won't be able to move forward collectively as a church unless we deal with those wounds, unless we do the hard work of forgiveness and understanding what it is and what it isn't and why it matters. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at forgiveness together. We're going to begin by just a simple understanding of how it's defined. How does God define forgiveness? In order to do that, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 34 together. Um, but before we go to Exodus 34, I do need to give a little background, a little um, context to where we're jumping in to um, this, this uh, passage in Exodus. Exodus begins with um, God delivering his people, the children of Israel, out of slavery, out of Egypt. Moses leads them out, and they cross over through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness, and he leads them to Mount Sinai, um, where ultimately um, God is preparing his people to, to go into the promised land. And while they're there, God not only gives them the Ten Commandments, but he also, through Moses, gives them a long list of um, laws and instructions, including, you know, how to get along with um, your neighbors and liability issues and livestock issues and a whole number of things. It's a very long list. It's an impressively long list that God gives to the people. And after God gives the, the, this list of the rules and, and regulations and the laws, um, Moses comes to the people and says, how will you respond? Are you ready to commit to what God has called us to do, to what he's, in, he's led us to, his instructions. And I want you to see their response in um, chapter 24. We're going to go back. It's not printed for you, but I just want you to see it. So he goes to the people and listen to their response. It says this, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Well, if you know the story... Not so much. <laughs> In fact, very little, hardly anything that God said that they, did they do. And they demonstrated that very quickly. See, after this, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to kind of seal what God has declared, this, this commitment that they're making with the Ten Commands. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commands on the stone tablets that God made. And um, Moses is gone for 40 days. Now, within that time frame, what did the people of Israel do? They start to panic. They, th they start to think, well, in, you know, certainly God has left us. And Moses has left us. God's cashed out. Moses left us. And so they start to panic and they start to go and look to, for another God. This is what we do sometimes, right? When God doesn't work on our time frame and it just doesn't 
doesn't seem to be going the way that we think it should go, we start to, um, we start to look at other places, and this is exactly what the Israelites do. Forty days, that's all, that's it. And they turn to, to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, yep, Moses has left. God's certainly checked out on us, so can you make us another God that we can worship? And so they fashion a golden calf, and the people of Israel worship and give themselves over in worship to the golden calf. Now, Moses, when he's coming down from Mount Sinai, um, he picks up his aide, Joshua, and as he picks up Joshua, Joshua can, they can hear the noise from the camp, the Israelites who are camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and Joshua says, oh, I hear the sounds of war. But Moses, who's much more spiritually discerned, says, nope, I hear the sound of defeat. And he gets down and he finds the people of Israel completely given over in worship to a golden calf. Moses, in anger, smashes the Ten Commands. The old anger issue just has a tendency to come back up at times, right? He smashes the Ten Commands. He disciplines the people of God. And after that, he then has to go back and get the Ten Commands all over again, which is where we pick up here in Exodus what I want to do is I want to read the passage um, so you can get the understanding of it, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it verse by verse. But this is where we pick up in Exodus 34. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two more. Oh, sorry, in verse 1 here, in verse 30, Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. You dope. I love, I love the Bible. It's just honest. It's real. You know, here's a guy who's the servant of God, but he's just so relatable. He has anger that pops up just like any, any one of us we can understand. Verse 2. Be ready in the morning, and then come, uh, come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds the, the, may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, now looking back at verse one, let's, go, let's look at the passage together. It begins with this. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and you will write um, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So again, Moses broke the first ones. God made those tablets um, and wrote on them. This time, God says to Moses, you make the tablets and you're going to write on them. So this is, this is what's taking place here. Secondly, in verse 2, it says this, Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. So he says, hey, get up early. I want you to come up to the mountain and meet me there on the top. And this is where he'll give him this further instructions. Verse 3 says this, No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So the final instruction that he gives him is come alone. 
So come up to the mountain, come with the, the tablets that you've chiseled out this time, and meet me there. And so this is where um, it goes now to verse 4. It says this, So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. I picture Moses saying, carrying those tablets saying, do not break these tablets. Do not break these tablets. Do not, just every step, I'm not going to break them. I'm not going to break them. So this is what's going on. He makes his way up with the stone tablets that he's chiseled this time up to meet the Lord. Then verse five, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. This is really a remarkable thing. It says that God came down. He stoops down to be with Moses. And this is fascinating because Moses in the previous chapter, had made a very bold prayer. He prayed, God, will you show me your glory? That is, God, I want to see you. If you're going to lead us into this promised land, I want to see who you are. I want to know you. I want to see you. And God says, you can't see me. I'm t- if you saw my face, you would die. So he's like, oh, you can't see my face, but you'll be able to see my back as I pass you by. Now, what does God's face or his back look like? I don't know. It's interesting. God doesn't tell him. We don't see here in this passage what God looks like, his face or his back. But he does describe what God is like. Not what he looks like, but what he is like. And then he goes on. You see that in verse 6. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So again, we don't know what he looks like, what his face or his back, but we do begin to know who God is like, which is actually more helpful for us anyway. We need to know what God is like who he is. And he makes this great statement. In fact, the statement here in verses 6 and 7 are um, a, a statement of the characteristic of God. And they're used, it's used in over 20 different places throughout the Bible. This is a, a very, very important statement about God and his character and who he is. So we get a glimpse of who God is here. And it says this, and it's, there's seven characteristics of God that are listed here. The Lord, the Lord, the, the compassionate and gracious God. So he's compassionate, which means he understands our weakness, and he's compassionate towards us in our weakness. And it says he's a gracious God. So he's gracious and he's merciful. And this is an important thing for us to stop in here. This is the first thing that he states. He says the Lord is compassionate and gracious. And here's what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to be like God. We're called to follow him. And if we're called to follow him, we need to be like him. This means we need to be compassionate and gracious. We need to be merciful. Now, I know that sometimes when we come to faith in Christ, all of a sudden we get really fixated on justice. Because for the first time ever, we realize what's right and what's wrong, and we say, justice, yes, and we want everyone else to do what's right and wrong, and we force people into doing what's right and wrong. Whether we did it right or not, we get fixated on justice, but we just need to stop for a moment and remember God is compassionate and gracious. We need justice, but we need to remember this, and we need to know that we need it for ourselves, and others need it too. It's the, it's the story of the woman who goes to get um, her picture taken. And just before the photographer, you know, takes the photo, um, she says to him, okay, okay, uh, do me justice. And the photographer, before he takes the picture, leans over and says, ma'am, I think you want me to do you mercy. (laughs) I know, a little harsh, right? (laughs) But I think it's true, right? We need mercy, 
And we need to give other people mercy as well. This is the heart and the characteristic of God that we need to see. So he's compassionate and he's gracious. He's merciful. And then it says this, he's slow to anger. This is important. God is patient. He is slow to anger. And for many of you, you just need to know this. Maybe the most important thing you need to know about God is that he's um, slow to anger. And this is important for you to know perhaps because for many of you, you didn't have a father like that. And you need to know that God is not like your father. And I know for many of you, you had a father who at any moment was just ready to explode. It was just a ticking time bomb. And you, you never knew when it was going to happen, when you are going to get it. And it was not this slow to anger uh, uh, orientation. And you need to know that God is slow to anger. Now, it's not that God doesn't get angry. He does, but he's slow to become angry. So you need to know this and understand this about the character of God, our Father. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. This, this idea of a love and faithfulness is the chesed, love of God. It's, it's faithful. He's faithful. And he's faithful even when we're faithless, the Bible tells us. That even when we aren't faithful to God, he's still faithful. Because this is part of who he is. Then it goes on in verse 7. It says this maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So maintaining love to thousands, that's really an abbreviation. It's thousands of generations. So it's, that's how much his uh, forgiveness extends. It's, uh, if you want to write down a, a, a passage, Exodus 20, uh, verse 6, talks about how his, his love and his forgiveness extends to um, thousands of generations. So this is important for us to understand. And it says, forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. All of us have wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but God in his character is forgiving. He's forgiving to that. Now, the thought here, of course, in verse 7 is, okay, God, stop right there. That would be great. Stop at this point in verse 7. But he doesn't. In verse 7, it continues and it says this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the, of the parents to the third and fourth fourth generation. So this is important. We know from this previous statement about God and his character that he is absolutely loving, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's forgiving. So he sees us with nothing but absolute love. And yet, the second part of this passage helps us understand he's still just. And he still doesn't leave the um, unjust unpunished, that there's still accountability for sin for rebellion, for wickedness. This is important for us to understand that there's both sides of God. That, and it's important to understand this and because God does not ignore reality. God is forgiving, but he doesn't ignore the reality of sin and pain and hurt and wounds. He doesn't gloss over that. And I think sometimes when it comes to forgiveness, we falsely come to this conclusion that, well, you know, yeah, they hurt me, but it's really not that big of a deal. You know, I'll just, you know, they, yeah, I was wounded. They sinned against me, but, you know, we'll just forget about it and, and they'll just, you know, not address it. But that's, that's not biblical. God does not ignore that reality, and we shouldn't either. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, there's real damage. There's real pain. There's real um, destruction, and, 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 it's, and it's not to be denied. It's not to be uh, forgotten. It's very real. There's loss of trust. There's damages. There's resentment. There is that reality, and God is forgiving, but he doesn't ignore the reality of sin, of wickedness, and rebellion. So we need to see both sides of that. 
which is important for us to understand when we've been hurt, how God understands the wounds that we've experienced, but it also needs to, to sober us up that in our own sin, in our own wickedness and rebellion, God doesn't just say, well, ignore that. There's still the reality that He does not ignore. He's merciful and He's just. Now, the last part here is interesting, and I'll just mention this. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I think it's possible that you read this and you think to yourself, well, because my great-grandfather was a shoplifter, that's why I'm having a really hard day. And that's not what this passage is saying. You're probably having a hard day because of your decisions and your choices. You're doing your own work to make the challenges that you're facing a reality. And so it's not necessarily that, it's not that because of some past sin of grandma or grandpa or great-grandma or grandpa that now you're having a hard time. You're experiencing a hard time because you're making certain choices that are creating a hard time in your life. We just have to recognize that and understand that. In fact, um, Ezekiel 18 says this, that we are accountable for our own sin and for our own sin only. But it is fair to say that um, if people don't want to give up their sin, that it has a tendency of repeating itself. If we don't address the sin in our life, what happens is the pattern will continue if we aren't um, willing to face the certain realities in our own life too. So you see that happen in generations. You see a broken home lead to a broken home lead to a broken home. You see alcoholism lead to alcoholism lead to alcoholism. You see a person who's grown up in an environment with judgment and anger, and you see them repeat the same pattern and repeat the same pattern. But here's the good news. The good news is that can end in your generation. That can end with you through the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to him and you recognize, God, I can't. I need to break the chains and the cycle, the, the sin, that this pattern that's been, can, that's been carried out in my family or in my life. You come to him, he can transform you, and it can end in your generation. That's the hope. That's the, the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to recognize that reality too. Now, stepping back in this passage just for a moment, it teaches us again these two realities, that God sees us with nothing other than complete and absolute love. And at the same time, he's, he's not ignoring the reality that there's still a God who is just and holds us accountable for our sin. So what do we do with that tension? What does God do with that tension? A God who says, I'm forgiving, and a God who says, I'm, I'm going to punish. What happens? What, what do we do with this tension? Well, God ans- God's answer to that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ where we see God both through Jesus Christ satisfy his justice and his mercy and his love. It's because of God's need, satisfaction, need to satisfy, and his desire to satisfy justice that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's how serious God is when it comes to sin. But at the same time, Jesus willingly went to the cross because of his deep love for us and his desire for us to be brought back into right, right relationship with him. So in Jesus Christ, we find the satisfaction of both the love of God, the justice of God. That's why I want to give you um, a Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, that says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins. And then let me give you 14 as well. It says this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We were indebted. 
God didn't ignore the fact that there's a real debt, but through Jesus Christ, he cancels the debt. And he makes it possible for us to be forgiven and be brought back into right relationship with the Heavenly Father. This is This is so powerful and so important for us to understand who God is and what he has done. And through this, we can understand how forgiveness is then defined for us. By the model, the example of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, we can have a better understanding of what forgiveness really looks like. And as followers of Christ, if we receive forgiveness, then we say, God, help us to be people who follow you and offer forgiveness. And this is why it's important for us to say, well, how is it defined in Jesus that we can then follow? So the first thing that I want you to see is this, that we need to recognize the debt and cancel it. Recognize the debt and cancel it. Again, the verse we just read, God does not ignore that reality, that there's a debt that is owed. He doesn't ignore our debtedness, but what does he do with it? He chose to pay it. He doesn't say, you pay. You carry the burden. He says, no, no, I'll pay it for you, on your behalf. The Bible tells us something that we already know to be true about ourselves, but we want to ignore. That each and every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. And when we fall short of the glory of God, the penalty for that, for our sin, when we fall short, is death. That's the debt that we owe, is death, the penalty for our sin. But God, in his love for us, sent Jesus Christ to die on the the cross in our place to pay our debt. This is what he does. And it's, again, he recognizes that there's a real debt, and yet he cancels it. This is what it does. And this isn't challenging for us because it, it's, again, for us, the reality that, yes, when you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been damaged, it's, it's real, and, and you can recognize that. But then to follow the example of Christ, then we step forward and we cancel it. When I was in college, uh, or heading into college, my freshman year, I got a, I was applying, to, I applied to a school, I got in, and um, I didn't know who my roommate was going to be, and so the school was just randomly going to assign uh, me a roommate um, to this new school that I was going to, and I remember getting a letter in the mail um, with the name of my new college roommate, and it said the name of the, the student, and it said where they were from. Guess where they were from? Kennewick, Washington. I grew up in Portland. I didn't really know where Kennewick was, so I had to kind of figure that out first of all. But Kennewick was where this student was from, who was going to be my randomly assigned roommate. Now, um, then it gave the name, and he became my roommate that freshman year. In fact, he became my roommate all throughout college because we had a, a good and deep friendship. When I talked to my friend who's from Kennewick, Washington, when I was applying for the position here at South Hills Church, I was telling him that I was applying to South Hills, and he's like, yeah, South Hills, it doesn't ring a bell. Um, but I pushed a little harder, and, and I'm like, well, where did you go to church? He's like, well, um, First Baptist. Uh, um, is that what it's called, right? Before First Baptist um, is where I went. Uh, and uh, he's like, yeah, the pastor was named Phil Paulson. I'm like, oh, really? Well, that's, that's the old name of the church that's now South Hills. And he's like, oh, my goodness, it's amazing. And so he grew up in this church. His name is Todd Manning. Um, and he grew up being a part of this church. And I brought a picture of Todd so you can see him. This is him. Uh, he and I, um, this is actually a, a Todd when he had his, his first son, Benjamin, when I, I, I went to visit him. And so we uh, formed a, a friendship, and, and we still have that friendship. In fact, I was talking to him just yesterday um, about, uh, about my time here, and 
And I asked him actually some clarification on my story that I want to tell you right now. Because Todd, when he came to um, college, he came with a car. And I didn't come with a car. When I went to, uh, to school, I didn't have a vehicle. But Todd did come with a vehicle. In fact, he came with a vehicle, um, a Mercury Cougar. This was his car. This is the vehicle he came. He, I think he, re- he restored this car with his dad. There's another one. I think he had a Mustang as well. But this is the car that he restored with his dad in high school. This is the car he brought to college. Now, Todd Manning is an amazingly generous person. And so I didn't have a car. A number of people didn't have a car. But Todd would say, yeah, if you want, you want to borrow my car, go for it. Here's the keys. And so multiple times we would go out and we could take his car. If we needed to go somewhere, go on a date, whatever it might be, it's like, hey, cool. We've got a, co- a cool car that we can take because that was Todd. Now, at some point that freshman year, I wrecked his car. <laughs> and I'll spare you the details, but I wrecked it. Not awful, not totaled, but not something I could hide either. (laughs) And trust me, I thought about that (laughs) when I wrecked his car. But I knew, dang it, I got to tell Todd. I I wrecked the car, his car that he and his dad had restored in high school, that he was so generous to let me borrow. I was nervous. And I remember going to Todd saying, hey, Todd, about your about your cougar. I, I wrecked it. And he was like, okay. I'm like, no, I, I, I damaged it. There's, it's clear. You can't see. He's like, okay, let's go take a look. He, saw, he looked at it. He's like, it's okay, Scott. We'll take care of it. I don't have a picture of that. Yes. I, that's a memory I don't want to keep. Um, but I was blown away. I was ready for him to kick me out, say, you're not my roommate anymore. That, uh, we, you know, there's no relationship here or, you know, you, you must pay me X amount of money. In fact, here's the deal. I had no money. I couldn't, I couldn't pay for the repairs of his car. But you know what he did? He's like, I'll pay for it. So he took it home. He and his dad worked on it, got it fixed up. He paid for it. Isn't that amazing? Now, eventually, at some point, I did pay him back because we just have a friendship and I wanted to maintain that friendship. And, uh, but it was a remarkable thing. And this is what Jesus does for us. We come to him. Here's our debt. I owe you. And he says, hey, I forgive you. And I'll pay it. We recognize it's a debt that we can't pay. And he says, I'll pay it. I'll pay for your sins on the cross. That's what Jesus does for us. He recognizes the sin. He recognizes our debt. And he cancels it. Just like my roommate Todd did for me. It's a powerful thing. But there's a second aspect of uh, forgiveness that we need to see in, as well. The second aspect is this, that we not only um, recognize the debt and cancel it, but we release the right to bring a charge. We release the right to bring a charge. This is an important thing, and I want to go back to Colossians 2, verse 14, because this is so powerful. It says this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, it's not only that he cancels it, but he obliterates it. He takes it away. He sees it no longer. In fact, in the, the Greek, it's, it's, it's as if there's the, or, or the charge that's against us, it's just scraped off. It's not there. The ledger is, is wiped clean. See, if I steal $20 from you, and you, you say, oh man, you write down somewhere, you note, you know, Scott took $20 from me. 
He owes me $20. You write it down. Now, if at some point I pay you back the $20, what you might do is just cross out that line, that indebtedness. But what happens is you can still see it, can't you? The line's there, but you still see Scott owed me $20. This passage tells us that, that Jesus, through his work, he scrapes it off. There's no more ledger. It's no longer seen. It's gone. This is what he does. He wipes it clean. He no longer has a charge to bring forward because it is gone. White as snow. It's powerful. It, forgiveness is not only canceling the debt, it's releasing the power, the right to bring it back up. To, to say, yeah, remember what you did in the past? And this is a challenging thing for us to do because each and every one of us can easily fall into this trap, this pattern. We do it with our kids. Do you remember what you did? And we bring up the past. We do this in our marriages. We get, uh, so many marriages get sideways because they get historical. Oh yeah, you remember that? You remember this? Can I bring that back? Can I rub your nose back into it again? And we get historical and let's like, let's just bring out all the trash that we tried to dump, we threw out there. Let's bring it back out. Let's put it all on the floor so we can just, you know, live in it, sit in it again. And it's damaging, Right? But because of Jesus, what he's done for us, he says, hey, it's wiped clean. It's no longer there, no longer bringing the charge up against you. It's powerful. You know what? When I borrowed my the car from after, after Todd fixed his car, when he came back and his car was fixed, he paid the debt. You know what he'd said? Scott, here's the keys. Go ahead and take it out again. And he didn't say, Scott, you remember last time you took it out? He didn't bring it back up. He just said, any time. Never brought it up again. Never. He released the right to bring back the charge. He said, it's over. It's canceled. Now we move forward. No longer there. And here's why this is important, because I think that we can fall into the trap of pseudo-forgiveness, where we say, oh, I've forgiven them. But then any chance we have, we bring it up with people. We bring it up with them. It's the business partner who, over COVID, ripped you off, hurt you, damaged the partnership, the relationship, ran off, and you're stuck. And there's, there's a wound there. There's hurt. But you say, oh, I've forgiven them. Okay, really? You've forgiven them? Can I ask you a question? Do you, when you have the opportunity, ever bring up their name in conversation with other people? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I'll, constantly I'm telling people what a jerk that person was and how much money they took from me and how terrible they were and don't ever do business with them and how awful they are. And of course, I've forgiven them, so I'm, I'm good. But I don't miss a chance to remind people of how bad they are. Do you get that? See, forgiveness says I canceled the debt, but I'm also not going to bring up the charge. And this is a powerful thing. And you may be saying, well, this is really hard. Of course it is. This is why we need God's help. We can't do this on our own. We do need God's help. In fact, if you're saying, hey, I, I just, I can't do it and, and, and I just keep bringing it back up, then it means that we still need to get back to the business of forgiving. We need to go down a little deeper because we haven't fully forgiven. But until we do, we will still be shackled by those chains. We'll still have grudges. We'll still have bitterness. And it keeps us stuck, not them. 
And it damages us and it damages our relationship. So we need to step forward into the forgiveness and the grace of God and what that really means as he defines it. There's a third thing that I want you to see. Third one is this. Not only recognize the debt and cancel it, release the right to bring a charge, but resolve the emotional distance. Resolve the emotional distance. Here's the interesting thing. When God forgave us through Christ, he resolved a spiritual distance between us and God. In fact, it says this in 1 Colossians um, 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So there's been a, a re- resolution of a, of a spiritual separation. He's brought us from darkness into light, into the kingdom of God. So he's resolved that distance, broken the barrier, the spiritual barrier that's between us and God. But when we forgive, there also needs to be a decision to keep our hearts open to emotional reconnection. And we see that through the the heart of of Jesus as well, through what he's done for us on the cross. And in Hebrews 10, it says this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. So it's because of the, the forgiveness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can now approach him, that we can approach him with assurance and confidence emotionally and brought back into a relationship with him. This is what forgiveness offers, what it brings. Now, I want to be very clear and very careful here because this does not mean um, that you move back in with your abuser. This does not mean that you have no boundaries in your life. There are times and clearly where there's boundaries that need to be set. There are certain things that you need to say, this is not wise. But just because you set a boundary does not mean you build a wall that you can never see through. That, it's, it, that you never, that you allow the boundary to become a barrier to relationship or even an openness to the relationship. Because I think what we want to do is I'll spiritually forgive you, but I'll never open the door to a, a, a reconciliation. And there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. But what we want to do is stop at forgiveness. Spiritually, I'll forgive you. But I'm going to close my heart to you. I'm going to withhold love from you. I'm going to build a wall around myself so it never could ever be in, in open to a relationship with you again. And again, that's not biblical. I know it's not easy, and I didn't, we need wisdom. There's times when we just say it's not wise, but we have to maintain an openness to reconciliation, that there's a sense of resolution that comes, and that's what we see through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it's a, it's a difficult thing, a very challenging thing to do. I think of, when I think of, this concept, this idea, I think of um, the moment when Cory Ten Boom, who, if you're familiar with Cory Ten Boom, she was a, a Nazi concentration camp survivor. And she was a survivor, and after, she, um, after, after the war and after she was released, she um, spoke in many different places about the forgiveness of God. And in one particular instance, she was speaking at a church in Munich, and while she was there speaking, she was talking about the forgiveness of God and how as we come and confess our sins to God, he forgives us. And it's as if he takes our sin and he throws it into the ocean. It sinks to the bottom, never to be brought up again. This is what God's forgiveness is like. Now, after she'd given this message about God's forgiveness, um, the, the church, the people in the church begin to um, move and work their way out. And as they work their way out, um, there was someone who was coming forward towards her. And at first she didn't recognize him, but soon his face, the image became clear. 
It was a former guard in the concentration camp that she and her sister Betsy were a part of. The very concentration camp that her sister had died in, where they had been um, humiliated, abused, hurt, beaten. This is, this is the place, and this a guard is coming forward from that prison camp. The man comes up to Corrie Ten Boom. He does not recognize her, but she does recognize him. And she says, he says to her, I heard you talking about Ravensbrook. That's the prison camp that I was posted at. And since that time, I've become a Christian. And I've asked God to forgive me for the horrible things I've done in my life. And he reaches out his hand to her and says, will you, for, will you forgive me too? I want to, you to hear what she writes about this experience. This is her words as she describes this experience, this moment where she's faced with the challenge of forgiveness. And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been with many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours, as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If we do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, but even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that God removed the barrier between us and God. We were enemies. We were objects of wrath. We were condemned, but through the work of Jesus Christ, he brought us near. He offers us forgiveness and hope, salvation, a new and restored relationship not because we deserved it or did anything to earn it. In fact, we were sinful, wicked, and rebellious. And yet God reached out to us. This is what he does. 
This is forgiveness. This past year, I read an article, and it was titled, America Has Forgotten How to Forgive. And in the article, the writer tells a story, actually talks about a journalist who was promoted to, um, or hired, in fact, to be the editor of a, a very large magazine, magazine, nationally known, was hired to be the editor of this magazine. Now, um, in the article, the writer talks about how shortly after it was announced that this person, this woman, got this job as the editor of this magazine, that um, people in, on staff begin to revolt. And they revolted, and there was a backlash because of statements that this person had made um, 10 years earlier when she was 17 years old on Twitter. Um, and so what happened was they began to say, well, this is what she said when she was 17, when she was, she was on Twitter, and they begin to post and, and share and begin to really, in a certain sense, say, we're, we're refusing her as our new boss. And be, there was so much um, uh, really outcry from public that this person lost their job. Now, again, I don't, I'm not here to get into all the details of what she said or didn't say. I'll just say this. I'm super glad that I don't have a written public record of things that I said when I was 17 years old <laughs> that could be <laughs> held against me. Stuff that I did or stuff that I said, I'm glad that some of that is just gone and can't be brought back up. But for this person, a decade later, this stuff is brought back up. Now, interestingly, two years before she got hired at this magazine, she'd made a very public apology saying that she was very sorry and asking for forgiveness for her, um, her words, the hurtful and insensitive words that she used when she was 17 years old. The magazine understood that those, that's what she had said, that, that the apology that she made and, and had recognized, yes, she made it, and they hired her, but the, the American public, the people who worked there said, no, 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 we won't do it. And so she was ousted. Now, I say all this because to me, it just stands in stark contrast. The cultural understanding of forgiveness versus Christ and his definition of forgiveness. Because look at, them, look at this with me again. These three, these three definitions that we have of, of, of forgiveness. The first one is this, recognize the debt and cancel it. Now, in this case, there was a debt. Oh, yes, when you were 17, you made these things, made these statements. Guess what? You still owe on that debt. And so we're demanding your job. And she lost it. Oh, release the right to bring a charge. Oh yeah, by the way, those tweets that you made when you were 17, we're going to bring them public. We're going to post them all over the place. We want everyone to know what you said back when you were 17 years old, when you were in high school. And we want that to be known because we are not releasing you from the charge. We're ignoring your apology and we're, we want to bring that back up. Three, uh, resolve the emotional distance. Interestingly, it wasn't this sense of, hey, I'll cancel your debt, but th th what happens in our culture so often is I'll cancel you. And there is no sense of, oh, relationship could ever be restored. But this is, we live in a cancel culture where it's, oh, you've wronged me, you're canceled, you're turned off. That's the concept, that's the idea. But I'll just say this, aren't you glad that God doesn't treat us that way? Aren't you glad that God, who recognizes our debt, says, I'll pay it. I won't make you pay. I'll pay it. I'll cancel it. That God says, hey, I'll release the right to bring that charge back up. But you're white as snow. He won't bring it back up. Three, that he resolves the emotional distance that he steps towards us, not away from us. Aren't you glad that's how God sees us? 
The question is, how will we respond? When it comes to forgiveness, are we going to allow culture to define it for us? Or are we going to allow Christ to define it for us in terms of our relationships? And my concern is this, that culture is creeping into the church. And we begin to look at relationships and forgiveness the way that culture defines it, the way that I define it, instead of saying, I need to look at forgiveness the way that Christ defines it. But when we do, it makes a great difference. Because it, it makes a difference in our life, and it can make a difference in the lives of others. And may we be a church that isn't defined and directed by culture, but it's just that we're defined and directed by the love of Christ. And we look at relationships differently because of what Christ has done for us. We need God's help though, don't we? So let's take a moment and let's ask him for his help together. God, as we come before you now, we just recognize our need for you when it comes to this subject of forgiveness. And I know for, for some of you who are here today, you want to live differently. You want to break patterns and you want to live your life in a different way. But I'll say this, you won't be able to do it until you first receive the forgiveness that God has for you through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here and you've never received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, now's your moment. Now is an opportunity for you to say, yeah, God, I recognize my debt, my sin, my rebellion, the patterns in my life, the behaviors that are destructive to me and to others. And God, I know you recognize it too and you did something about it. You died on the cross for my sins. I want to receive your forgiveness now. Thank you for dying for me in my place so that I could be free. You pray that prayer, he will forgive you. He won't bring back up the charge. He'll bring you into a relationship with God that is eternal. That's his promise. And for some of you here, you've been following God a long time, but it's easy to allow culture to creep in and for us to define forgiveness in the way the world does instead of the way that God does. And so now is your opportunity to say, God, will you help me? Help me to forgive the way that you've forgiven me. Transform my relationships because of your love and help me by your strength, your power, the Holy Spirit, to forgive others the way that you have forgiven me. God, again, we thank you for your love, your forgiveness, and your grace. We thank you that you walk with us through all of these things. In your name, amen.